Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss and Cage Podcast. So today's show, we're going to be talking about acquisitions and mergers. And obviously, you know, the person I'm talking to, I'm going to deem him the acquisition boss for obvious reason. So Kisan, why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about who you are and what are we going to be talking about in more detail today? Sure. I'm Kisan Patel, CEO and founder of a business called m Science. That is a suite of different products geared towards the industry of mergers and acquisitions. Uh, we focus on the corporate sector. A lot of our clients are larger multinational corporations that do quite a bit of M&A. They're doing at least three transactions a year. It's part of their growth strategy. I've uh, spent about 10 years as an advisor, wanted to get into the tech space, got involved with the startup that didn't pan out the way I wanted it to, but exposed me to the way software engineers would utilize project management tools to make their approach of developing software more efficient that really intrigued me and kept referencing back to my experience in MA and thought why didn't we have tools like this would have made things a lot easier more efficient and that led to inspiration of starting a company in deal room 2012 and that uh evolved as technology products do around 2017 a good marketer friend of mine got me into podcasting started a podcast called MA science which evolved into a full digital media business that we run today. So a lot of our product lines that we've added since then are all geared towards education and training for the industry or technology tools to help optimize the process. So it seems like you're, you're maximizing growth strategies across the board. I mean, obviously you're helping your clients with growth strategy, but you're also demonstrating it for yourself internally as well, going from like a software platform like Deal Room and going into a podcast and then kind of creating this whole ensemble of education packages included. Is that correct? It's, it's problem solving. You solve a problem and then you develop that as your capability, your ability to solve the problem, create value, find adjacencies. What's the next thing that's close to it? And you'll find them and keep at it. And that's how we ended up with the portfolio of solutions. So out of the three solutions that, I mean, obviously you've grown into, right? I mean, I say you've probably grown into more like an agency format, like which one kind of pulls at your heartstrings more? It's it's tough because I, I say there's two big products that I like. There's Deal Room, which is the first product suite that we created. And that single product became a lifecycle management solution. Mm. So it's really a pretty beefy, complex solution that solves a lot of problems across so many life cycle. And it's one we've worked on the longest. The It's, it's a pretty big business line for us. But I, I think adjacent to that is this framework. We published a book a few years ago called Agile M&A. It was based on case studies we did with Google and Alassie and how they use these agile techniques from their engineering culture into their M&A process with a lot of great success. And it's not a revenue driver for us at all. It's a complete open source initiative. The reason it's, I'm drawn into is the impact we're making in the industry. This is this crowdsourcing model to take all these best practices, make it publicly available so anybody can get access to it, 
if you wake up one day and say, hey, I want to be an MA practitioner, now you got this comprehensive resource that you can start learning that's the best of from top level practitioners and get you that skill set you need to go out and actively pursue a career in the field. Nice. Nice. I mean, I just hearing you speak about like M&A and, and, and for, the, for the listener that doesn't know what M&A is, obviously it's talking about mergers and acquisitions, right? And you keep saying a practitioner, kind of like like you're a doctor going to surgery. So I want to like talk about that a little bit more. Like, like what do you actually do with, for example, deal room? Let's say I'm coming to you and I'm saying, hey guys, I have this particular software platform. I have this corporation that backs it. You know, we're, we're netting say $10 million per year, but we're, we're looking to assume some new products to scale. What's the next step? Sure. In a corporate environment, when they're buying companies, there's a lot of people involved. You're going to have this core corporate development team that typically is relatively small. Oftentimes, we're working with one to 10 billion market cap companies, and that team size is around three to 10 people. And they're responsible for inorganic growth, which oftentimes MA is the tool that they use to pursue those opportunities. This team would lead identifying opportunities. They may work with other business leaders in the organization and they extend the network of different investment bankers, private equity firms to have these relationships to identify opportunities uh, in the market. When they find one, that's when they'll do evaluation. They may help lead that to get a sense of what's this value to our company and, and manage the process. But as they progress the process of buying the company, more and more people get involved. You're going to bring in these functional leaders from the different departments, your legal, HR, IT, marketing, and so forth. And they're going to help do the diligence. Uh -huh. And diligence essentially means study. But what we're looking for is the risk. We want to make sure what we're spending for this business, uh, what's represented is accurate, that we're getting what we're paying for. You want to make sure there's no big red flags or surprises that catch us that may compromise that value that we're spending. Uh, and that's a big thing is if we do identify risk, because things will always pop up, can we mitigate it? Do we have a plan to make sure we're comfortable with it and get to that point where we're really comfortable to close? Also at that time, we want to plan on what we're going to do with this business after we buy it. This market is hyper competitive. When you're buying a business, you're typically paying a premium for it and anticipating on unlocking value through a series of events after you close on the business, which in corporate lingo, they'll frame as cost synergies or revenue synergies. Cost synergies meaning, hey, we don't need two CFOs. We don't need two backend support functions. We're gonna eliminate one. We're gonna combine them together, reduce some costs. That's where we're gonna get value add right there through these reduction of costs and activities around that. Then the revenue synergy side, what are the areas that we can grow revenues? Maybe we're a large corporation that has a massive distribution across a thousand sales reps. And we're going to take this new tech widget product and train our sales reps to sell it. Now, all of a sudden, they were growing you know, a couple million a year with a thousand reps selling it. We're going to start increasing that by a significant amount every year after year. And we're anticipating on that. Um, so that that's the big thing we want to really plan on those activities while we're doing diligence to make sure once we close on this deal, we can hit the ground running and unlock that value. And that's that's the the magic of why we're doing these deals. If we're bringing a new product to make us more competitive in the market, um, and then there's various drivers entering new markets and and so forth. 
Yeah, so I mean, obviously, you're like a puppeteer. You're moving multiple different strings in the process of doing your due diligence. So, I mean, with that, I mean, is deal room something that where you can capture these data points? And again, I'm saying like, if if somebody's coming to you, you're going to have to have like some kind of ongoing checklist to say, okay, this is a major red flag and there's a no-go. We're not signing on the dotted line. So the deal room solution emerged. The industry, I noticed, was pretty stagnant. The When I worked in the field, we'd use Excel for everything. You're using an Excel sheet to manage all the things that need to happen. So early stage, I have an Excel tracker to manage the companies I'm tracking to know which ones we want to go after. And then I get to that point, we get the conversation, we officially launch a diligence process. Then that list gets bigger of all the information I need from the company to review. I get more people involved. They're asking for additional information. We're requesting documentation back and forth. Traditionally, they would use a virtual data room and they're pretty expensive solutions. They charge you per page. Uh, again, pretty antiquated model today. Like why are we charging page for anything? Everything's in the cloud. Uh, and they're using Excel tracker back and forth. You know, Here's a, a little index number to go find in the data room. Pretty clunky process. And then integration, same thing, massive Excel list, tracking of who's doing what. So really for us is to come in and replace that with one tech stack saying, hey, here's a portal that's actually designed for M&A that allows you to manage your pipeline, manage your diligence process, all those to-do lists and the file security because we got this sensitivity between buyers and sellers. I'm sharing data. You don't quite own the business. This is stuff that's confidential. You probably got a confidentiality agreement we're going to sign to make sure that you don't share this beyond. And, and after we disband from the deal, you're going to destroy or you know, what you're going to do or can and can't do with the information. Uh, but we want to manage all of that. And then you improve it. You say, hey, because we're not bouncing around with all these different tools, we have everything in one portal, we can build some nice workflows. So if I ask for a document, I can just drag and drop that document to that request and it automatically does the rest. It'll put it in the file security uh, repository, link it to the request, I can manage all the permissions, make sure the right eyeballs are looking at it. And then the people that are going to prepare the integration work, I can get them access to it and everything's in one place. There's just a lot of efficiency when it comes to data management and unlocking uh, the capabilities for collaboration between these different teams that may be internal in the company, an external outside consultant, or with that counterparty, the, the other side. Nice, nice. So it seems like you created an encompassing system that has uh, SOPs built into it. You have like some automation built into it as well. You have security. And that kind of leads me to like my next question about security. Are you dealing with more so um, publicly traded companies? Do you have to deal with FINRA in, in any aspect of what you're doing? FINRA comes up with investment banks. It's I wouldn't say that's the biggest thing for us when we work with larger corporations. It's their IT security review. We've seen in the news some big breaches the solar winds, Okta, and that's some things that raise more concerns across the board. Nobody wants to be the next headline PR of a breach. And it makes such an impact on the business and how they got to respond to it. So now everybody's even being more sensitive and their vendor reviews are becoming more stringent. So for us, it's a lot of resources we have to add to respond to a lot of the security reviews when we're trying to onboard a new client. And also just constantly investing in the platform, constantly investing in our security infrastructure, bringing resources in there, getting more certifications and credentials. SOC 2 is becoming almost a standardization where you, you have to have it, you have to keep up with it. Um, and people are asking to see those reports. They wanna see your pen tests that you're doing and just continuously making sure you're evolving and staying on top of security standards. 
Nice, nice. So let's talk about like range, right? I mean, obviously the scope of work can be very variable, right? So, I mean, like what's the smallest acquisition to the largest acquisition that you guys have handled before? We have a product called firmroom.com and that's designed for smaller transactions. We designed it for like five to $20 million transactions. We just noticed they'd come up and our deal room solution wasn't a right size and pricing fit for those type of transactions. Uh, so the smaller ones are there to self-service model, but large scale, it varies quite a bit. We set up the infrastructure for corporations so they can run multiple activities concurrently, whether it's selling an asset, buying an asset, they may do a tiny little aqua hire, buying a small five person team, getting them in there pretty straightforward. But we've had last year, uh, Emerson did $11 billion transaction through the platform and it's large scale. They're carving out a couple of business lines, integrating into this new platform they acquired. Uh, so there, there's a lot of people involved when you're doing larger transaction. Um, but for the most part, it's working with the corporation to set up their infrastructure. So they have the capability to whether do large transactions, small transaction, or just the volume of transactions. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, let's talk about you like, on the personal side a little bit. Because, I mean, I, like, I don't want to dive down that road too far. Because, I mean, I love what you do and I'm loving your platform and I'm loving the infrastructure that, that you have. But I just want to know a little bit more about you. Like, if you could define yourself in three to five words, what three to five words would you choose? I'd hit my values, discipline, uh, continuous learning, and uh, empathy, empathetic. Hmm. Empathetic. Interesting. So let's go back. Let's go back in time a little bit. Like what kind of kid were you growing up? Were you kind of like the kid? And, and I, I made this facetious joke about were you the kid that was memorizing like, the almanac or were you more so a kid that was going out playing baseball? I was a kid that was always trying to make a buck somewhere. I remember even 13 years old, I, I saw a big demand for the kids that want to smoke cigarettes and uh, be cool. And then there's a population of other kids that we're always smoking cigarettes. Mm. And next thing you know, I'm asking like, Hey, where do you get the cigarettes from? And I'm, I'm, you know, you know, turning my locker into a tobacco shop when I was 13 peddling cigarettes, chewing tobacco and cigars. And at the time with immigrant parents, they're not investing a lot in your outfits so that you can look cool. And that was my big goal. I wanted to get some money so I can get some better fits and look cool. Uh, and that, that so it's always something, you know, in the college, I remember, burning CDs and peddling those things around when Napster was a thing. So it was always something uh, sort of driving, where's an opportunity? Where can I make a, a dollar here and, and grow, find something? That's interesting. Definitely interesting. So like, just talk about like worst case versus best case scenarios, right? I mean, obviously you're talking about huge acquisitions and mergers. I mean, and, and you're talking about a couple million to Presley, a couple billion dollars in range, right? So without naming names, what's the worst experience you've had dealing with this type of business? For us as a company or just seeing clients work? Either or, which one, I mean, which one stands out to you the most? You know, the one I remember, I guess even just trying to connect with some of the entrepreneurs that may be listening early beginnings they're rough there's just so many hard lessons learned that you can't anticipate on and for us was understanding the nature of security like it really takes about three years to build a product and have some maturity of security we were handling a hundred million dollar deal we weren't there yet we were still we we're getting users but we didn't have a product that was built for scale. We had to rebuild it. And we learned this because our site was crashing while this deal was happening. 
And it kept happening. And even though I go to the client promising this was never going to happen again, and it would happen again. And I just, it was such an embarrassing moment. Uh, I remember even stuffing a couple hundred dollars in an envelope with a note saying, I truly apologize. I owe you night out. Uh, yeah. So I, I remember that just working on our, our first real transactions in the early beginnings and making some big, big mistakes that was tough. It was tough for us to, it was a good learning experience. It was a big wake up call on what you need to do and how you got to be prepared and make sure you're delivering value, make sure you're communicating how you can handle those tough situations when things are going wrong, because you can't hide from them. You need to be able to step up, step up, take accountability and ownership. But that's uh, pro- probably some of the, one of the big things that went awry in our early years. So it sounds like you had some some serious growing pains. I mean, with that, I mean, was it hard for you to overcome it? And when you did overcome, because obviously you did, like, like what steps and procedures did you put in to make sure that these things wouldn't happen moving forward? It's, it's almost, I'd say it's pretty natural. It's a big wake up call and you, you scramble to figure it out. You, for us was getting experts. I knew we had a team and we had these failing points and part of it was the team was pretty junior and we need to bring some seasoned professional. We ended up hiring a seasoned developer to come in and help architect a plan so that we can rebuild our product and design it for scale so that we can redesign it, build it around microservices. Usually when you prototype a software application, it's just one big app, it's a monolithic app. And a lot of things, it's, it's almost spaghetti coded because you're reworking things, prototyping and moving things around. We rebuilt it with the microservices architecture into little apps that talk to each other. So one thing breaks here, it doesn't take everything out. Uh, and that, that's, that was a big thing that you learn from, you bring in experts to help you problem solve. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest thing was just looking, being conscious about what problems you have, trying to look around the corner, what's ahead, but then really being proactive about who's going to help you. Because if you don't have the expertise in-house, who can you grow your network, expand to get access to those people that can help you solve those problems? Hmm. Definitely interesting. I mean, what version of of software are you guys on? I mean, to, for the average listener, you know, versioning, meaning that, okay, you know, 1.0 is the first version and then it's 1.2.3 or 3.4. So what version is your platform is right now currently? It's tough to say that we, we do weekly pushes of code out and I don't directly manage the team. And, you know, if I, if I were to put something on it, maybe a version four or five, you know, I, I almost think it takes about version three to get a level of maturity that it, the market becomes acceptance. I know some of these large companies, they will not use your solution unless you're six years in the market. Hmm. So there, there, there is some truth around that in terms of the maturity of your product. Uh, your customer base says a lot about that. How many customers you have, what kind of customers. Hmm. But I, you know, for us, we do weekly builds that we push out. You know, broadly looking at it, we're, we're constantly rebuilding parts of it. Then we have initiatives to do bigger rebuilds. And it could be the underpinning architecture technology of the software. It could be a, more of the interface, which is actually visible. But um, yeah, we've gone through quite a bit. It's never ending. There is no build an app and it sits there and the work's done. If you got actual users on there, they're going to have different needs. Mm-hmm. You're going to be growing. Requirements are going to come in. Technology constantly changes. So you're never ending when it comes to uh, updating the tool. I think that's interesting. I mean, you, you made one key remark about being six years vetted before particular clients where you signed a contract to use that platform. So, Mike, my next question is, how long have you been on the journey to get where you are currently? 
Deal room, we started in 2012. So we got a good 10 years of working on this solution. First five years was really, really tough. When we talked the pain point of here's this big client and struggling with that, but even getting those first clients, we worked in an industry that's very conservative, finance. Mm-hmm. Who wants to trust you with the large multi-million dollar transaction? It took a lot of knocking on doors before we finally got those first opportunities. Hmm. So when you say knocking on doors, I, I think you're talking about like virtual doors or were you guys actually physically doing like out, out the, the trunk of the car knocking on the doors? Virtually. I use LinkedIn. I reach out to folks, practitioners. They hey, I'm trying to build. I'm trying to solve this problem, I'm trying to get people's attention. And that does the early entrepreneurial founder sales. It's a, it's a lot of work. Definitely. It's definitely a hell of a story. So uh, it leads me to like my next question. I mean, you, you was talking about like your parents being um, not from the U.S. So what kind of like parents did you have? Were they both entrepreneurs? Were you know, did you have an uncle that was an entrepreneur? Where are you getting your entrepreneurial insight from? I had Indian immigrant parents. I grew up in small town, Nebraska. And I don't know if it's an Indian thing from the region we're at. It was pretty common to own a little motel in the middle of nowhere. And uh, that's what they did. I watched them grow up watching them operate that business. Mm. I think the one thing I've learned looking back was my dad would always be doing something. There was never just sitting around doing nothing. It was always something. It was changing the carpets. It was shampooing the carpets. It was fixing little things that broke. It was always some little thing to to improve. Mm. And I think that helped when even now we talk about agile world and how do you build a culture of continuous improvement, but I was exposed to that pretty early, even though he just had a pretty basic business, it was very bootstrapped. It wasn't that he had a bunch of money or took a big loan from the bank and did a big remodel at once. He never did that. It was always year after year, just little incremental changes continuously. And he took this pretty crappy dumpy motel and turned it into something that was pretty nice and operated profitably but it was all through the series of iterations. I think that's one thing looking back that we take to heart in the culture we have in the business we're building today is even new hires. I'm always challenging them from the beginning. I want you to create a list and document every little opportunity you see to improve. And I criticize them for not coming up with enough because ultimately I want them to develop that, 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 that muscle, that, um, it's part of that culture to constantly look for ways that we can get better, even the micro things, the macro things, but everybody in the company needs to take ownership so we can have that culture of continuous improvement. Nice. So, I mean, you're talking about agile and you're talking about continuous improvement. So if you can go back in time and take what you know about agile now, where would you go back and what would you change if you only had like a day to do it? You know, I would go back to starting even this business um, I, I would go back and I think the thing I would change is we went right out to building a product and taking it out to market with a lot of assumptions. And I feel like this is a natural founder thing to do where you take ownership of this idea and you build a solution and you, you're, I don't want to say you're blind to it, but there's a lot of biases that come in play because it's your idea. It's your championing it. And a lot of the things you're doing are very much based on assumptions and you may not be conscious to it. If I were to go back, because the big monumental change for us was when we did have a product, we came to this realization, we screwed up big time. We put a product in the market and it's no way going to get market fit. It was going in the wrong direction. We had to reboot. We had to start from scratch. That hard lesson 
allowed us to focus on the market, forget about what we're thinking and what we know we want to do. Let's spend the time and have conversations with these prospective customers. Let's understand them. Let's talk to them and understand their pain points and validate the problems we're solving and really talk to them to the point where you're being unbiased. You're getting this mindset where you know nothing or whatever you know is wrong. So you can intently listen, understand what they're thinking, understand how they feel about their problems, why they feel that way, document it. And you learn so much. You learn, we learned that, hey, we're focusing on the wrong problem. There's a bigger problem we could solve and that that's that's more important for them. They're willing to pay more for it. They're more interested in solving that problem. Uh, And then when you go through creating solutions, you keep that feedback loop there get that feedback and you're going to get better ideas than what you have that the people that are closest to the problems are likely to have ideas to solve it um i I think that that was a big thing if i were to go back i would really create that feedback loop as early as possible and do that before we even spend a dollar building i would because it's you know it doesn't cost any money to talk to somebody and truly understand that problem um, even I meet new entrepreneurs now and say, okay, great. I got this thing. I'm doing, okay, how many people did you talk to to validate that that's a problem we're solving for? And I, I challenge them like, all right, go, go talk to like 40 people. Cause you'll, if you do it in a right way where it's again, I'm biased. Can I come up with questions? You know, I can say, Hey, I say, what's your biggest challenge you face today? Hmm. And so, you know, whatever it is, and then build it, at least understand that and look for patterns. And then you can say, Oh, I, I can see some things happening here that, if I can try to prioritize and understand what's the biggest problems for this market I'm trying to serve. And then that allows you to, to validate that and get a sense of am I solving the right problem to begin with. Nice, nice. Um, people skip it. They don't want to do the work. They yeah. skip it over and say, no, I'm, I'm going to build this. I'm going to build this little thing. And it's like, okay, well, how do you know people actually want it? Uh, and then once you've done that, then it, again, same thing, very iterative on the solution. You don't need to go hire programmers. Just start mocking stuff up. I hire a student. Say, hey, let's just keep mock this stuff up just so I can get in front of people and get feedback. It's so much easier to change a mock-up than it is to change something that's finished and already coded. Way cheaper to do that. Uh, and you're going to save a bunch of time. You know, you deliver a finished product and people start giving you the feedback and then you cringe like, oh, I got to change that. I got you. This is going to cost me a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time. Well, if you had that tight feedback loop, you could have done it through those stages and um, it would allow you to end up with a product that was more fit to your customer. Yeah, I think that this is a hell of a, hell of a insightful answer. And it kind of, you know, you keep reiterating about like the loop back and the loop back and the feedback, right? So that goes right back to like Agile. So if you don't mind for like the average listener that's listening and maybe this will be the first time they may hear Agile, right? Like, could you define Agile in, in your work environment? Like, how do you guys utilize it and what is it doing for you? The, the idea of Agile is to respond to changes as they're happening. And it's, it's associated with the project management role or project management approach. We're very familiar with a waterfall or a plan-driven approach. A good example is if you build a house, right? You build a house, you're going to work with an architect and they're going to create a blueprint. Once the blueprint's done, from the time you use that blueprint to building the house, probably not going to be a lot of changes. You just tend to follow the plan. Uh, and there's certain projects where it makes sense, where your variables aren't changing. But when it comes to building software, there are a lot of assumptions that you have. You may look at a profile of your customer and say, okay, I'm going to build a software tool. It's going to have these seven key features. 
And as an idea with agile, it's like, okay, why don't we focus on one, figure out what the most important one is. Uh, let's spend our time and energy instead of creating this big plan for all seven features that's going to turn this massive document. We're just going to focus on the one and detail it out and build it and be able to put it out there and get that feedback. And we continuously try to get feedback. We may find out that, hey, this other feature we thought was really important isn't. We're just going to delete that off our outline. This other one, uh, and, and the idea is that we're trying to keep this all in order of priority, do the most important things first. And said, hey, you know, this thing we thought wasn't that important. We should push it up on a top of our list because it's a lot more important than we thought. So now all of a sudden you're making these adjustments in your plan as you're building and you're responding to the feedback and updating your plan accordingly. So you're very being really iterative. You're just continuously updating your plan as you're building the solution. And it allows you to be a lot more efficient because now you can keep these changes going and deliver something that customer actually wants instead of I follow the plan and then I give it to the customer and they give woman all this feedback to you. Uh, and, and that gets you back to, to making all these ch unexpected changes, which extend your project timeline and occurring a lot more costs. Yeah, I mean, just listening to you speak, I mean, it's like, like, like I, I would, and I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, right? I think like you're 50% analytical, 50% creative, and I can hear it because like on one side of you sound so much like an investment banker, but on the other side, you sound so much like, like a project developer of software and code and development. So bringing both these hemispheres together is definitely interesting to hear it in this space. So my next question is like, do, do, you, do you know that about you? Or is that something that you've kind of just grown into and you just kind of owned it over a period of time? Hey, I, I was just talking about this the other day. I podcast and did a quick introduction for a group. And the thing is, I even surprised myself looking back because I was always an introvert as a kid. I was a person that was extremely fearful of any public speaking. I hate anytime I did it, I was terrible at it. I, I shied away from it. And now I'm constantly out there getting in front of an audience talking. Uh, and my brother, I remember about six years ago, actually sat me down and said, Hey, if anybody I know, you're the one person that's a full 180. You used to be such a reserved person. And, and now you're the person that works the room. How'd you do it? And I, I told him, I said, I made up my mind what I wanted to do. I knew where I wanted to go. If I'm going to build a company, I want to lead it. I got to be a leader. I got to come out of that shell. And I would push myself incrementally to do it. I remember my first strategy was I'm going to go to these networking events for the tech guys. And I figured, you know what? These tech geeks are all going to be shy and it won't be so bad. I was dead wrong. I was like, they're not that shy. And I found myself in that same spot where I was this wallflower. And then I, I pushed myself to say, you know what? I'm going to get myself in front of somebody. I'm going to put my hand out and say hi. And uh, I, I did that and realized it's actually not that hard. Once you can break the ice, it becomes really easy to have that conversation. So I, I started doing that. I got to a point where we hired a PR person for the company and she was asking me my comfortability of public speaking. I said, look, I, I've done a little bit of it. I'm not great at it, but I'm willing to take the challenge to get better. Mm -hmm. And we looked at hiring some of those executive uh, coaches that help you with public speaking. And they're insanely expensive. The hourly rates up there. And I'm sure if you're in the position, you can hire them. But I said, hey, why don't we find an alternative? And I started taking theater acting classes, I took um, yeah, various public storytelling, took stand-up comedy, these things, and they were fun. I was like, wow, I'm actually with a group of folks, you're learning together, it's a social environment. Uh, so they're a lot more cost-effective, but it helped quite a bit, and that allowed me to come out of my shell. So it, it's uh, one, just being conscious of who you are. If you have these blind spots, 
at least know it. You know, you don't want to be defensive about it. And I see that personality sometimes where we try to be the know-it-all and this and that. I'd rather be vulnerable. I'd rather challenge people to point out where my deficiencies are, get into that uh, acknowledgement that I'm blind to my weaknesses. So the more I can get folks pointing it out and saying, hey, how can I get better? Ask that or that feedback, get people to challenge you. Now that you take what you don't know, at least know what you don't know, I can proactively improve in that area. Though when I started getting into the leadership side, our company was five people. I knew I sucked at being a leader. I wasn't, there's things I was missing out. I, I knew I couldn't motivate the team well. I started reading leadership books, thought this would help me. Wasn't the most helpful. I started reading these psychology books. The organizational psychology books were way more helpful to understand how people work. What's the work environment you need to create for people to thrive? And I learned about creating communication framework where you can create a work environment that everybody truly feels their voice is being heard. And it's so important because you enable everybody across the company to be able to speak up about ideas on how they can get better. And that's the biggest thing I've learned. The best ideas don't come from the top. Uh, and then also pointing out where the problems are. What can we do to improve? Here's some cracks that are appearing. Let's fix them before they blow through the floor. So so important to create that communication platform and get your team comfortable to speak up, acknowledging achievements. When people have contributed work, they made this achievement, acknowledging it. When to acknowledge it one-on-one, when to acknowledge it broadly across the company uh, and creating this environment where your team can socialize with each other so they build relationships and feel they work among friends. Um, you, you know, th those things they learn from organizational psychology books and to learn from the leadership stuff, but that's that, that understanding, Hey, if I didn't proactively try to improve my leadership skills, I've never would have been exposed to any of that and understand. Now I know my goals. I know what I need to achieve. Uh, but I want to be open about it because I don't know all this stuff. Now I can constantly ask the team to contribute say, if we're together going to try to create an organization with a strong communication framework, how do we do that? Let them bring up their ideas bring uh bring that and that allows you to set by example but also uh you know don't put all the burden on you i think entrepreneurs tend to do that where they take so much ownership of their problems it's not always your problem it's somebody else's like figure out how to reassign it if that's the case because uh you, you know that's how you got to build the the team where everybody can take accountability and ownership yeah i mean i'm, I'm just listening to you speak i mean like like i could tell like like you're profound when it comes to general leadership, right? So how does that transition into like your, your work-life family balance? Like, I mean, are you like a leader in the household per se, or are you more laid back when you come home after the clock is done? Uh, you know, I, I, my wife's the one that's very laid back. So I, I have to be the one that kind of comes in and, and still keeps that uh, level of, uh, hey, here's some discipline or here's some goals. Uh, I, I uh, had a friend who gave me an idea to... Um, uh, sort of do um, kind of like like a, like a New Year's, you know, we review resolution, but it's uh, uh, just really addressed with the family. Um, what's our current state, right? And walk them through like, what, what are our goals as a family? You know, what are we trying? And then letting the kids, I have three little kids, 11 and my two, my daughter's 11, my two boys are six and nine. And, you know, the second like state of address, right? Where, where is our current state right now? What have we achieved this past year? What were some of the best highlights we had? What are our goals for this next year? And letting them speak up and say, hey, my, my youngest, I want to play soccer. I want to get good at soccer. Uh, I want the one oldest one loves piano and track. That's the where I want to really focus on. The middle kid, 
loves playing video games, gamer, but like, what, what do you want to do beyond that? And he's like, he actually wants to learn to code and, and write games. So it's like, okay, what are we, now we're going to start working towards those. What do we need to do to plan around that? Um, what are we thinking about for trips? If we want to do something for fun as a family together, but uh, letting, enabling that, I think that's like, so it's, it's a little bit of that where I take some of these fundamentals I learned in business and the idea is just to expose them to it. You know, I do, I do it with my daughter, especially where let me just talk to them like an adult and talk to them about these things. That's the biggest thing. It's a whole passion thing I could get into where I feel that kids don't get exposed to these leadership lessons at that point that they could, because when, when should you teach it? I learned this stuff in my thirties. Why, why can't I learn in my twenties or teens even? So I, I think it was a little bit of that where it's not the laid back. It's saying, Hey, I, I want you to progress and develop as a parent, my principles and my, my uh, responsibilities are to feed you healthy and educate you. So I'm going to do my best. So it may come off. I might get criticized my wife. Like you talk to them like they're grown ups. But it's like, fine, they're going to learn a little quicker. Uh, we talk about that. Like we talk about purpose. We talk about your goals. How do you achieve those goals? And um, you know, it's a similar thing. But I, I think when they understand that, they know that mom's more laid back and she'll let me be the kid. But dad's kind of there. And he's the, the, the person, the business person and brings a little bit of it at home. Uh, you know, the balance can be tough. We're a growing business and there's a lot going on. So, you know, I'm fortunate to have a family that, understands that at times like today i'm traveling and and you know your sort of time balance is a little different it's not operating on a nine to five schedule where i'm there and that's where it's it's being conscious of how you spend your time with your family and i look at it where do i just sit home and i'm watching tv and i'm in the same room and that's my time with the family or is it are we proactively doing stuff i got my time i'm spending with you i want to make the most out of it what do we want to do together are we going to do some activities together are we going to sit there? I'm even booking a time with my daughter because even though I'm traveling, I said, let's do a weekly check-in and let's just start talking through some things. Uh, I think some of this stuff is rubbed off. At six years old, she did a lemonade stand. That would have turned out really well. COVID happened. She's like, dad, what do I do? You know, I can't do my lemonade stand. I said, well, you got to do everything like the, the rest of the world. They got to figure out your digital distribution model. Now she makes handmade jewelry and sells it online. So nice. let's check in. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I love that. I mean, you're talking about legacy building. It's not necessarily you're steering your kids to replace you and your business, but you're educating them on the processes and procedures that you wish that you would have known that you were younger. So I definitely commend you for that. I mean, I think anyone that's an entrepreneur with kids, if we're not doing this, we're doing our kids a disservice for sure. I think part of it was reflecting on my own values. I did this talk track 10 years ago, actually, and it was advice I'd give myself 10 years ago prior mm -hmm. And it got me to really, really think about my core values. And with the kids, I said, look, I really believe in this, that when you're conscious about the core values, you'll take more accountability and ownership and be proactive about adhering to them and make that part of you. I'm going to teach you my core values. You can evolve them as you grow up, but I at least want to give you something to start with. And we talked about it earlier that here's discipline, here's continuous learning and empathy. This is what it means. This is what I operate off of. This is where I attribute to the success and what's going to carry me forward. I want you to at least give you a starting place at the very least, because I learned this from experience and I want to harness this experience and provide it to you uh, and give examples of that. Like why discipline is so important. If you're not going to learn the ability to get comfortable doing the things you're uncomfortable doing, that's going to prevent you from doing a lot of things because even building a business Yes, there's some fun, great parts, but there's a lot of things that aren't fun and great, but you just got to do it. 
you know, I'm not a big fan of the, the modeling and finance stuff. I used to, but I don't, now at a point, I don't like doing that anymore, but I got to do it. I got to create projections. I got to be able to present it, talk to the numbers. I don't like doing it as much, but I just do it. It's a discipline. Um, so it's, it's like those skills you really want to embed and give them the example of why that attributes to your success. Stuff I've reflected on, distilled and say, okay, here's my key three values if anybody asks, but I, it allows me to articulate them. I can talk about it more. I can embody it. I can, I can make sure I'm living up to that because I'm, it's conscious, it's top of mind and it's something you uh, make part of you. Yeah, I'm loving your philosophies. I mean, it goes back to you talking about continuing education. So this next question is a three-part question in that area of expertise, right? So on your journey to get to where you are, right, within that that 10, 15-year span, what books did you read to help you get to where you are currently? The one, when, when I talked about empathy earlier, there's a book called Just Listen by Mark Golston, and PhD psychologist, and the book's all about empathy. It's called Just Listen, and it's just, that's what it's about. That one made a big impact, especially as a leader. A lot of times we enter these conversations, we have objectives. I want to get you to do something. I'm trying to convince you something. And it becomes top of mind that we're not really listening to the other person. So you got to learn how to put that to the side and get in that mindset we talked about earlier, where you assume what you know is wrong or you know nothing and focus on listening. You're trying to get a good interview. You want to make sure your audience can listen to this podcast and walk away with some takeaways. So the time was valuable for them. I want to make sure knowing that, that I, I can understand that that's your goal. You're, you're thinking about that. You're thinking about your audience. You don't have even expressed any self-interest through this whole conversation. Uh, you know, how is a person feeling? Why do they feel that way? And it allows you to understand their goals and challenges. If I can align myself around your goals and your challenges, that's going to allow me to be a lot more successful. Now we're talking about how to create value of the things that you actually care about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's it, it's, it builds off of that, that whole listen first. Influence is such a big thing. And you don't go talk to people. I like taking the extreme example of disputes, right? Because if you are have a dispute about something, uh, a lot of times you can argue that to death and both people walk away and they still believe in the same thing. So how do you truly influence the other person? And it, it starts with listening because until I truly understand why you think the way that you do uh-huh. and understand to the point where I actually believe it. So you know what? You're right. You're right in the fact that I, that you're right. And I get why you think that way like that. We don't do that. We just want to argue and defend our point And we're focused yeah. on that. But if I put it aside and say, well, well, walk me through that. Like, let me know. It changes the dynamics so much because now I've connected with you. Like I got to the point where I, I actually do understand why you think the way, because there's a reason why everybody thinks the way they do. There is, and it's to you to go discover it and figure it out. And when you do, that's the mag- that's magic gets unlocked there. That person feels felt, they're more inclined to reciprocate. They're going to listen back and say, hey, well, tell me why you think the way you did. Now, now we're getting into this coming together and let's, let's, let's start problem solving. Let's maybe we can find a good compromise for this. Um, that's why that listening first, I, I think that book, Just Listen, I, I recommend it. I looked up to Mark as a mentor. I was fortunate enough to actually get him on my podcast and say, hey, I want to, I want to just talk to you because you've been such a good impact. Just that book you published on my professional development and being a leader, listening first. 
Wow, wow. So it goes to my second half of this question. I mean, I think Listen First is a solid book. And obviously, you're an author as well, too. So let's talk about like your books and, and what could someone discover by reading one of your um so we have, we have two books published, we have a third one. I'd say the first one may be a little more recognized, but probably more applicable. It's uh, It was for me a learning journey about all these agile project management techniques and really simplifying it because a lot of it's from the software engineering space okay. and they use a lot of acronyms. And I think that space continues to evolve these concepts so they're pretty complex. And I wanted to introduce it to the finance industry. I'm borrowing ideas from the software industry and I'm introducing it to the finance folks in M&A that generally speaking have a pretty short attention span. So I need to simplify things as much as possible. So what we did basically was take a lot of these concepts of agile from the software engineering uh, culture and we simplified it to a point where probably high school kids could understand it. Not a lot of complex language, pretty fundamental concepts of how you keep lists in a descending order of priority instead of tagging them high priority. How do you conduct these stand-up meetings? How do you do these retrospectives so that you can get that feedback loop and keep iterating, course correcting? And we published it as a book that um, fortunate enough to have a friend influence as a framework so that people can adopt this framework and help their organizations move to more of a, an agile-based approach on their financial activities or acquisitions. That's interesting. So, I mean, like coming from like, I think the comment I made earlier about you being left brain, right brain, um, like your tool sets, right? I mean, from a financial standpoint, the tool sets are usually com completely different versus technology, right? So like what tools do you use on a day-to-day -day basis that you would not be able to do what you're doing without having access to that platform or platforms? Slack. We use Slack a lot. It's just chat. It allows us to run a distributed team. Um, I, I think that's just powerful communication. My inbox is messy, but whatever comes to Slack is going to get uh, more attention and prioritized. I think that, and then just the collaboration tools. We use Google Workspace. Being able to do real-time document editing allows us to have multiple people working together. I think that the, uh, the collaboration tools are big. We use our own product deal room for actually tracking our own internal tasks and, and to-dos, but any kind of project management tool, there's a bunch out there, uh, you, you know, whatever suits your need because simple to complex. But I think the combination using a project management tool, a chat tool, and then a productivity suite like Office 365 or Google Workspace. Nice, nice. So this, this, I want to go back to, to your, your baby girl, your daughter, with, with her, her lemonade stand that turned into selling earrings online. So I want you to talk about her in, say, 20, 30 years from now. Let's say she's old enough now. She has her corporation. She's about to do her first acquisition or her first merger, and she's hitting her first hurdle. What words of wisdom would you like to give to her to help her cross over that finish line to make that acquisition? You know, it's probably going to be things we've already talked about. I feel like a lot of this stuff is just real fundamental principles. And it may be just a reminder of, hey, you know, we talked about problem solving. We talked about decision making. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that I and, and a lot of this is prepared. Like I want to arm you as my child with the skills to be able to accomplish anything you want in this world. And we talk about we talk about what's the greatest skill. It's like convince anyone anything. You know, how do you do that? We start talking about empathy and some of these things but even at an early age when she was about six years old these kids learned to say thank you and sorry and i i have a rule that i don't want them to say thank you or sorry as standalone words 
And the reason why is because they're transactional words. They don't essentially don't have meaning. And I don't want you to use those words unless you add the for what, like why, you know, thank you for what, sorry for what, hey, sorry, I lost your umbrella. Uh, you know, so even when we go to the grocery store and check out, it's not that transactional. Thank you. Bye. It's, Hey, thank you for bagging the groceries so quickly. Thank you for the, the small talk. Thank you for smiling. You know, just whatever it is, add a reason why. And I think that helps because a lot of these things, when we look at problems at the end of the day, 90% of challenges we come across in the business environment are to a communication problem. And if we can start building this behavior of elaborating that why early, and we catch ourselves, even as we've grown up, we like, hey, can you do this for me? If you just tacked on that one little line of why, all of a sudden you created more meaning, you're getting better alignment, you're getting the person to be more likely to actually follow through. And if we can develop that early, just starting with our little transactional meaningless words, thank you and sorry, and start building that pattern of explaining why. Now it works against me as a parent because, hey, can I go to so-and-so's house so we can go do, you know, and then you're like, okay. <laughs> but um, it, it, it makes a big difference. I think getting that thinking at an early age allows them to start thinking one layer deeper on all these things when they're communicating uh, and allows them to have stronger communication and just think a little bit more about what they're saying. Wow. So, I mean, with that, how does someone find you or find Deal Room? I mean, obviously you have an online presence, you have social media. What's the best platform? Yeah. If somebody wants to learn about MA, our two websites, we have 1,500 pages of publicly available content on MA between dealroom.net and mascience.com. I don't use a lot of social media, but I'm on LinkedIn. So it's just Kisan Patel on LinkedIn. Great. Great. So I got a couple of bonus questions for you. And one of them, I'm intrigued to see what you're going to say. If you could spend 24 hours with anyone, dead or alive, uninterrupted for those 24 hours, who would it be and why? But Elon Musk, just somebody that's continuously fascinating and unbelievable level of achievements. Mm -hmm. I've read his bio and just been very intrigued by the level of brilliance to, that he operates on. Hmm. Interesting. So another question for you, and this is just kind of a general fun one based on what you said earlier about, you know, doing stand up and, and doing drama. Are those those things that you still have passion for right now? Or were those the things that you were just doing to help build you as a speaker? It, I did at the time I did it for professional development so I can get comfortable speaking in public. Mm. I think as it evolves, it becomes part of you and the interest grew later. Like I wasn't super interested. It was something, again, a discipline. I wasn't comfortable doing it. So therefore I didn't like doing it. But as I pursued it, I became comfortable doing it. Now I enjoy doing it. I didn't like podcasts when I first started doing it. I didn't like it the first year. I didn't like it the second year. Third year, I'm like, I got a pretty good voice. I like the sound of this. And then and now I pursue it going to the sixth year. I love podcasting. I'm happy to hop on a guest podcast and, and, and riff and uh, it, it, it gets fun. You get passionate about it when you start seeing the progress, you get good at it and you find what you really like about it. So I, I think now I, I am very interested. Sales is a really good example. I love, I'm a builder at the end of the day, that's these different types of CEOs. Uh, I'm definitely more of the builder type and I didn't have interest in sales. 
But now where I'm currently set up, I have executives that take care of all the product development and all these operational pieces that I'm not interested at this time. I really get to focus on sales and that's where I'm super interested in. And it's going back and taking these communication skills I've learned, being able to work and develop a team. I really enjoy it and still find it challenging because now I'm overcoming these challenges that I try to avoid in the earlier parts of building the business. Wow. Wow. I mean, I think that that's a, that's a hell of an insightful full, um, answer to that question. I definitely appreciate that. So going into closing, I mean, obviously you're a fellow podcaster, you're a host, you've been on air for a long period of time. So the Boston case show is now yours. You're now the host and you have opportunity to interview me. Any questions that came up during this interview that you would like to ask me? What was like the biggest takeaway for you? What do you think is the the one thing that struck out is, hey, this is something that, uh, you know, may, may actually be a thing I can change, I can try. You know, I'm always curious about the level of influence you actually make on people. Because we talk a lot. We can shit talk all day. But what actually can drive a change? You know, is motivation something you can teach? And I'm, I'm wondering if there's an actual thing that comes out of it that you would encourage that would actually make a change. I think for you, I mean, in this entire thing, the thing that keeps reoccurring to me, and again, we talked about so many different topics and so much different things and business and everything else. But for you, I think it's just leadership and just the way you view leadership as being a universal thing. It is not something that you just do in your office. Again, you're a leader in your office environment, but you know what your strengths and weaknesses are. But at the same time, you're a leader at home and you're leading your kids to be leaders as well in your vision to what a leader should be, which goes back to your three principles that you said earlier in the show. So professional development that you, if you do is professional development, develop yourself and then be able to develop others. I think, I think that, that that's right. Based upon what I, what I've heard from you, I would say that that's definitely right. But I, I think the key word is just the way you organize your leadership. I mean, there's obviously strict leaders, there's soft leaders, and you're neither strict or soft. You're kind of more of a logical leader that says, okay, things need to be done a particular way. But again, you you give like the reasons why, like this is why it should be done this way. Here's the cause and effect of why things should be done this way. And you're doing it at home as well with your kids. You're saying to say thank you, but thank you for what? And you're following through more than just the action is the action supported by the definition of what 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 the action was supported for in the first place. So I think you as a leader, I think that's my key takeaway that I got from you is just understanding leadership from a different point of view. And, and I definitely love your leadership style for sure. Thank you. Well, I definitely appreciate you, man. We're coming up on the top of the hour. I don't want to suck up too much more of your time. Then we could probably stay on this podcast and end up being like Joe Rogan and talk for two and a half hours easily. But I definitely appreciate your time. I think you gave us some great insight. I think if anyone that does not understand what acquisitions and mergers are by the end of this podcast, you should have some kind of profound eye-opening moment to realize that this is something that you potentially can grow into and there's different levels to mergers and acquisitions. So I definitely appreciate you being on the show today. My pleasure. I appreciate you having me, S.A. S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762-233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. 
Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss on Cage are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.